Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window. It's a podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and today I'm joined by pod regulars Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, as Arsene Wenger's time looks to be up at Arsenal, we look at Celtic boss Brendan Rodgers' credentials to take over. Robert Lewandowski has a new agent in Pinzahavi. Will he be on his way out of Bavaria? Reports coming from Spain suggest an incredible swap deal between Phil Coutinho and Kylian Mbappe is in the offing. We assess the facts behind this potential move. And it's a story that won't go away. After a link to Real Madrid, we give you the latest on Paul Pogba and Manchester United. Okay, moving right on to the news that's dominating a lot of the uh, discussion today with regards to Arsene Wenger after that Carabao Cup defeat to Manchester City. 3-0, we've had all sorts of adjectives thrown about in terms of the the paucity of that performance. If Arsene does actually leave Arsenal, then I suppose the question is who replaces him. Ian, you have a name there that you think might be a suitable one? Well, Brendan Rodgers is in the mix, Johnny, that's for sure. Um, I, I, I Except that some people might find that um, unusual, or, or you know, they might think, well, why would that be the case? But um, he's not first on the list. I, I'm I'm fairly certain that Luis Enrique, the former Barcelona manager, is is Arsenal's um, primary candidate. However, he also has overtures from Chelsea and Paris Saint Germain, which means that Arsenal, you know, you could argue would be third choice there. Although we can come on to the whys and wherefores of that later. In regards to Brendan Rodgers. Um, what people seem to have forgotten very quickly is that he, you know, took Liverpool to the verge of a, a Premier League title for the first time in two decades. He played expansive, entertaining, thrilling football. Um, obviously, he had Luis Suarez, uh, Felipe Coutinho, and a fit Daniel Sturridge in a team that was able to do that. Ask yourself, what do Arsenal fans want from their team? They want that type of football. They're not getting it. They're not getting commitment. They're not getting flair. They're not getting passion. They're not getting anything. As Gary Neville said in commentary during the game on Sunday, it was shameful and spineless <clears throat> the way that some of the Arsenal players performed. Um, they seemed to have no care, no, not even professional pride in themselves enough to actually try and get back into that game and, and make something of it, just even make a competition of it, because it was a parade for Manchester City. Um, the Brendan has done very well at Celtic. Obviously, he's won every trophy that, that he's... he's um, uh, entered into uh, in domestic sense. Uh, I do think he's finding the European uh, failure, the lack of, um, let's just say, uh, being able to compare his own uh, squad and the quality of that squad to some of the better teams that he's come up against. And I'm not talking about Manchester City uh, here in terms of Champions League group stages. I'm talking about even Zenit St. Petersburg. Uh, last week, um, and obviously three 0 defeat, etc. Even though they played very well in the first leg, Brendan's always uh, been a very ambitious coach. Uh, wants to return to England, or, or would also go to a, a good club abroad if the challenge came up. But I think Arsenal and Brendan are a good fit. You think about the fact that Arsenal give you time; they don't. They're not a sacking club, as we know. Wenger's been there twenty-one years. Um, 
they want a certain brand of football. They, they, their budgets have expanded. You know, they, they, they're not quite at, at the sort of top three level yet, but they have money in the bank to spend. It's a massive challenge, Arsenal, now. For whoever goes in there, huge challenge. You're going to have to rip that squad apart, rebuild it um, on a certain amount of budget. I'm not saying they're not going to be cheap, but, you know, they, they will have... Uh, there'll be money there to spend, and I think even Stan Kroenke now is willing to admit that serious investment in the team has to come and has to come this summer. So I don't think that Brendan Rodgers is such a, a crazy appointment in that do, sense. Ian, do you think Brendan would snap your hand off for the Arsenal job? Because you've talked in the past about him wanting to move abroad, maybe it's an Atletico Madrid or or a Marseille to test Johnny, himself. I, I do. I, th- I think Arsenal is one of the best jobs in football. Um, you've got that um, historical uh, sort of sense of their grandness. Um, they've got a, certainly in the last 15, 20 years a reputation for playing the kind of football that Brendan Rodgers loves and, and certainly um, executes uh, as, uh, as teams from Swansea right through to Liverpool and now Celtic. Um, Brendan's worked on a, a very tight budget at Celtic but produced very good football. I think that's been noticed. Um, and also Brendan is, is charismatic and, and Arsenal needs someone now Look, they want a young coach. They know that Wenger's gone on too long. He's passed the sell-by date. They want a young coach, someone who can relate better to 22, 23-year-old millionaires or Mesut or 28-year-old billionaire. And uh, they, they need someone like Brendan who can um, motivate uh, and inspire players to become better players. And that's what Rodgers has done throughout his career. And um, look, I, I don't think people in England specifically believe that Brendan's went to a backwater in Scottish football and has been all, all but forgotten about. That's not true. It's not true at all. The Everton, when the Everton job was up for grabs, Brendan was, was definitely you know, contacted about that. He didn't think it was the right project for him. And I think Arsenal would be a club he could not turn down, even despite the love of Celtic. I think pretty much everyone agrees that he may have done as much as he can at Celtic. And uh, the ability to go to Arsenal, challenge for the Premier League, Potentially, maybe in two or three years' time, chance for the Champions League. Far too tempting. And um, and also, as I say, it's, it's a huge, huge job. And one I think Brendan Rodgers would, would absolutely uh, cherish. Not just cherish, but he, I think he would be right for it as well. But, as I said, the caveat here is he's not first choice. I'd say he's third or fourth on the list. And, Brendan, I believe that you know, you've got a couple of candidates as well who you uh, would think would be in the mix as well. Yeah, look, I, th- I think... Arsenal is a, a massive opportunity um, for whoever gets that job when Arsenal bite the bullet and make the de- finally take the decision to get Arsene Wenger out of a position that he's no longer suited for. And I, I wrote a piece um, yesterday, actually, for one of my other clients, Arab News, about Wenger's situation. And looking at the numbers, and Arsenal have the sixth highest turnover um, in world football. They, they turned over last year. They turned over four hundred million pounds. So the only clubs in England that exceed them are Manchester United and Manchester City, which tells you that they should be finishing in the top three at least, or or the top four, on a regular basis, which is what Wenger used to do, um, not win any silverware, but get them into the Champions League. Um, this season, it looks highly unlikely he's going to manage to get the Champions League. Um, almost impossible to get the Champions League from from league position. His one shot at it is Europa League, where they've got four rounds still to go through. 
the, the interesting thing for me is, do are Arsenal prepared to push him out the door? Because knowing Wenger as we do from working with him for many years, and this is fundamentally, I think, the problem with his management. He's, he's such a proud man um, that he has refused to change his methods um, essentially since 2004 and been overtaken by other coaches. You know, Jose Mourinho came in and, and, and brought a new form of preparation into the Premier League, a new form of tactical thinking, which has been adopted by <coughs> most um, managers since Ferguson uh, saw what Mourinho was doing and copied his ideas and, and got back to the top of European football just in the way that Ferguson copied what Wenger brought to English football in terms of physical and dietary preparation when he first arrived and, and, and his scouting and selection of European players copied that and, and beat Wenger. Wenger never changed. But that stubbornness is, is going to be, I think, an additional enemy for Arsenal in that can you see Arsene Wenger electing to leave Arsenal after 22 years on a season where he finishes likely sixth in the Premier League, a large up to fourth place, and probably doesn't win the Europa League. If, if, if he can't win the Europa League, if he doesn't have something to present as a kind of final victory, and, and a Europa League, although it's a secondary competition in Europe, it would represent his first European trophy of his career, that might be enough for him to say, OK, I, I decide to resign now, I leave the final year of my contract, I let the club choose a successor. If not, I think this is going to be a quite an ugly situation in which the, the fans will want change. The club probably know that change, I, the board probably know that change is necessary, but do they have the, the bravery to say, A, we are going to sack Arsene Wenger, and B, we are going to make this decision now over who his successor is. Because I don't think they have a clear idea who the successor is. I don't think they've had, they, they haven't, they've been prepared to look properly at the market and say there are better coaches out there, which there clearly are, and we need to change to make, to improve the chances of the club. And I'm not sure they're ready to do that yet. Two, two things have influenced that, Duncan, I think, in the last, let's just say, four years. Um, uh, one has been the fear of life after Wenger. Um, I know for sure that Arsenal looked at the state that Manchester United got themselves in in the appointment of David Moyes and then Louis van Gaal. Um, and obviously Ferguson's the only um, yardstick by which you can compare Wenger in terms of longevity at a top um, English club. And so they thought that stability um, and safety uh, were the better choice than, than ripping up and putting someone else in. But the other one is, and I think this is the pressing one, which will this summer come to bear. And I do believe Wenger will go in the summer. And that is elite coaches were either not available or were then employed somewhere else at the very time when Arsenal needed to make a move. And so they looked at it and thought, well, better the devil we know than the devil we don't. Um, we just keep Wenger on because there's no one out there to place him. This summer, Enrique is on the market. Uh, Luis at Monaco it, it would like a move um, I, I, Brendan Rodgers as we've discussed would be open to, to that p potential transfer and then you've got Jürgen the, the the Germany head coach who has been so successful and um, 
apparently now feels like his job with the national team is done and, and kind of itching to get into club management and maybe earn the kind of money that you know he's been denied by sticking with um, the the uh, the Germany job over the last eight years. So I think there's there's candidates there that Arsenal can't afford not to consider. And as you've written and we've talked about Duncan, we know that they have been preparing for Wenger's exit. I agree with you that it will be difficult and could also be um, acrimonious. But uh, Wenger, even Wenger has now to look at himself, look at the way the team is performing and say, this has got to end. And I think, of course, he will not be sacked. That will not happen. It will be a mutual consent and maybe, maybe he stays. Although I doubt it. I think he thinks he's got a couple of years, maybe even more left in him as a coach. And who knows, maybe he would swap uh, you know, the Emirates for Monaco if indeed Jardim left and went somewhere else. I don't know. But <clears> my <throat> point being that um, I do think Wenger will leave. And I think that the conversations we're having now and we will have over the coming weeks and months um, will be more and more significant regarding that particular um incident well that particular moving on of Wenger so I just say they have they have set the framework for change and that they've changed the recruitment staff they've changed the chief negotiator for transfers they've changed the head of performance so that it is easier now and that they have a, a structure within the club that's not Wenger as Wenger dependent as it used to be um, and yes there are I mean the, the other candidates available Carlo Ancelotti um, albeit more likely to go to Chelsea um, wants a job in the Premier League and would like to live in London, so he would be a, a clear candidate. You've got Paolo Fonseca, um, the Shakhtar the next manager who Everton almost appointed um, before turning to Sam Allardyce, who is out of contract at the end of the season and very interested in, in coaching in the, the Premier League. Um, you mentioned the Germany international manager, and, and obviously there's a you know there's a group of international managers coming to the end of their uh, their World Cup. Um, terms and which is a time that you often see guys leaving and and taking club jobs and one candidate there would be um, Jorge Sampaolo um, the Argentina manager who is also interested in taking a big job in Europe um, after the World Cup and has um, been uh, sounded out um, for, by people representing Tottenham um, in terms of just not, not actually putting the question to him, would he be interested in that job, but just doing the, the sort of background work of, is he, would he be a suitable appointment if they lose Pochettino? So, yeah, the, you're right. There are lots of people on the market. Um, whether Arsenal are prepared to pick one of them or not, we shall see. And we'll delve into those names in a little bit more detail in the quickfire round. Uh, but I'm going to move us on now to Robert Lewandowski, who is causing a bit of a ripple in the transfer market with a move to a new agent. Ian, do you fancy uh, illuminating us on that? Yeah. Um, well, look, I mean, I think everyone who's got interest in transfers knows the name Pini Zahavi. He was the original super agent. Um, he's been in the business a very long time, uh, more than 20, 25 years now. Uh, I first uh, met him um, when Ayl Berkovic transferred to Celtic. I think that was 1997 or 96, and uh, have been uh, been in touch with him ever since. He's a, he's a very colourful man and a very, very determined man, even for someone who's, let's just say, should be retiring, happily spending uh, the money he's made from football uh, somewhere on a beach in Tel Aviv, but he's not. He's still involved and <clears throat> heavily involved in 
what has been and, and will be probably for some time the shock transfer of Neymar to PSG from Barcelona uh, last summer. Uh, also involved in Felipe Coutinho's move from Liverpool to Barcelona. He's got himself a reputation, along with associates, we should say, for being the um, the jailbreaker, if you like, the guy who gets you out of a club uh, to a new club when you or uh, when your club, current club, doesn't want you to leave. Now, from what I hear, uh, Lewandowski, who has spent um, all of his career in the Bundesliga, um, first of all, Borussia Dortmund, and then at Bayern Munich, prolific goal scorer, consistently prolific, also. Um, for me, you know, I won't forget his performance in the 10-2 aggregate drubbing of Arsenal in the Champions League where he scored a perfect, you know, left foot, right foot header. Um, wonderful touch. He he has employed Zahavi now to get him a move. I think he basically has taken a phone call from Mesut Ozil, his international teammate. Um, sorry, not his international teammate, his former, his former teammate. Uh, at Dor- not Dortmund, sorry. Can we cut this bit out now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going in all the wrong directions. Uh, I'll start. I'll start that bit again. <clears throat> I think maybe he's taking a call from Mesut Ozil, um, and uh, he said to him, "I never believed you pay me pay me three hundred fifty grand a week, but they are. It's incredible. And this is just Arsenal. I think what you could get at Manchester City or, or you know, Chelsea. Um, and so Lewandowski, who currently doesn't earn that kind of money, remember that um, uh, Bayern Munich have always uh, made a point of paying less on basic wages and more on performance related bonuses." Um, which makes them unusual in terms of the elite clubs in Europe. So I think Lewandowski earns around £125,000 a week, which clearly is nowhere near what Alexis Sanchez is getting, or as I said, Mesut Ozil, um, and so, or even Alvaro Morata at Chelsea. I think at 29, 30 this year, he thinks this is my chance to get a big move, big contract, make myself comfortable. Uh, that's why I'm going to the big man, because I have to get me the move. And... Um, Personally, I think it's going to be it's going to be an expensive one because of the transfer fee. He's contracted until twenty twenty one at Bayern Munich, so you're looking at in excess of sixty million euros in transfer fee and probably more. Um, and then with the wages he'll demand. But what we've seen with Alexis Sanchez move to Manchester United, that there seems to be no depth uh, end of depth to the pockets in the Premier League in terms of the top four or five clubs. So that it wouldn't surprise me if we saw him at a club in England uh, come this summer. Although, Duncan, I think you would rule out one in particular. Yeah, look, I think what you've got to say with Bayern Munich is it's very difficult. That's one of the clubs that's very difficult to get out of unless that club wants to sell you. Um, so it's a tough move for Lewandowski. I can see why he's changed agent. Um, the agency was working with previously have a... Uh, a reputation in Germany as being a, a difficult um, uh, duo to deal with. So I wonder if Lewandowski's thinking here is I am looking for a big contract and I don't care whether that big contract is elsewhere in Europe. I use the leverage of, of, club, of big clubs elsewhere in Europe wanting me or whether I get a bigger one at Bayern Munich and, and cash in for the essentially what will be the last big deal of his career. Um, if he had been available, if he'd, he'd put himself in this situation and Pini Zahavi had been able to manufacture a move out of Bayern for him, both of those are big ifs, a year ago, then he would certainly have been a candidate for Manchester United. He's a player that Jose Mourinho has admired for a long time and has wanted to sign for several of his clubs. Um, 
for very obvious reasons, he's just he's a Mourinho type striker, and that he combines quality on the ball with good tactical awareness and height, um, which and is able to run the line by himself, which is you know the, the combination of qualities that Mourinho always looks for in his centre forwards. But I don't think that position is is open. Uh, Mourinho's on record as saying that he is happy with his um, group of attackers. Mm-hmm. And isn't looking to reinforce there. I think there's a, it's there, that might be slightly deceptive, and I can see him adding another wide player in the summer. But what is clear at Manchester United is their priorities will be in defence and midfield, and they need to um, realistically they probably need to sign two players, at least two players in defence, and at least two players in midfield in the summer. So uh, you can do the arithmetic on that and you can see what kind of transfer budgets he's had so far which are large compared to most Premier League clubs but not so large that he can go and buy four top players uh, for those positions and then have money over for a superstar striker so I I would not expect um, Lewandowski to be um, on Manchester United's list of targets in the summer. Liverpool are absolutely flying in terms of their strikers at the moment, but obviously Klopp has worked with this player before. Do you think there's any sense in, in that becoming something that, we, that we'll that look at as a potential move? It's, it's potential, Johnny, definitely. <clears throat> what you get with Lewandowski is, is guaranteed goals. And, you know, Liverpool have that front three right now, but they don't have an archetypal centre-forward. Firmino is not that player, despite the fact his sensation has been... Uh, his season has been sensational and um, I think somewhat overshadowed by Mo Salah's goals when in fact I think Firmino has been potentially Liverpool's best player um, whether or not you want to upset that I'm not sure um, they could have and they, they might have bought Obama Yang but clearly Klopp decided that both the fee and the wages weren't suited to his particular budget and, and again upsetting that front three was also something he was he was aware of but as I said, guaranteed goals are something that all clubs would love to have, um, and especially at the highest level. Um, Lewandowski has done that, and so I, I, I'd say that Chelsea would be a potential destination. They'll change manager. Morata's not worked out how as well as they thought, uh, but Schwai has gone on loan to Dortmund and, and may well stay there or go somewhere else. I think there'll be a reorganisation at Chelsea in terms of their um, attacking players. In the summer, uh, I think Aguero is someone who, untouchable at Manchester City, though he is, I think Guardiola would always prefer to have a player who you know could come in and score goals or could, in fact, challenge and take Aguero stroke Gabriel Jesus' place in the front of the line. Obviously, Lewandowski worked with Barney for three years. Why not? Manchester City, one of those players have got deep pockets. I think when a player like Lewandowski comes on the market and, and so publicly comes on the market, Every club who's got the budget and the money to be able to spend on his fee and wages is interested. The one I think that we haven't mentioned yet where I think there's a definite chance he'll end up is Real Madrid because it's become quite clear that Karim Benzema is expendable uh, and indeed is up for sale uh, and there are, there's interest in France uh, to take him back there. Uh, he's led the line at Real Madrid for, for the last six, seven years now. Lewandowski would be a like-for-like replacement, physicality, good on the ball, leads the line, on the shoulder of defenders, as Duncan pointed out, the, the, the kind of attributes that Jose Mourinho 
um, values greatly are the same that the Real Madrid play with in terms of a lone striker. So, um, whatever English clubs are interested in Lewandowski, I think they're going to have um, competition from from Real Madrid. I think if you if you're talking Liverpool, you've got to say, do Liverpool have the the desire and the wherewithal to spend that much on a transfer of a of a player who is well outside the age range of the players that um, FSG like to recruit with resale value? So I don't think so. I don't see them spending the money it would require to take Lewandowski out of Bayern. I don't see them giving him the wage that would be required. To, to get him to join them. And secondly, you've got to convince the player that Liverpool is the place to go to. And unless, you know, I, I, I see that some Liverpool fans are, are looking into booking their tickets to the Champions League final off the back of um, their, their glorious uh, first leg uh, round of 16 victory in the Champions League, you can't really see a, a player who's been at Bayern Munich and been the top striker in Germany for X number of years saying, oh, next career move, I'd like to go and play in Merseyside for Liverpool when, as Ian says, he will have um, interest and offers from stronger, um, better established clubs who have actually won silverware in recent years. Moving on from one big potential deal to another that would be, I think, fairly mind-blowing. The idea that Kylian Mbappe could be swapped for Phil Coutinho, a player that's only just moved to Barcelona. Duncan, what are you hearing about this? Well, it's a, it's a story that's been written by Diego Torres and El Pais um, and done in quite some detail today. Um, it's not He's not saying a, a, a direct swap deal. That What he's reporting is that it's been discussed within the... Um, technical department at PSG that a solution to a problem that is developing between uh, Neymar and Kylian Mbappe would be to offload Mbappe to Barcelona in exchange for Philippe Coutinho, who is a very close friend of Neymar's and uh, a lot of cash. Um, Now, the claim is that Neymar is essentially jealous and or stroke worried that Mbappe um, is going to supersede him as the most important player at PSG and that the strength of his performances are such that he's worried that instead of Neymar being the uncontested superstar of that team, Mbappe could rise to take his position. Um, And the argument is that uh, Neymar's not that he's not passing the ball to Mbappe, but that he's deliberately hitting passes that aren't quite good enough to Mbappe to make which it is even worse. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it's worth reading because you know Diego Torres points out that one of Neymar's great qualities is is the is his ability to pass the ball and create chances um, with precision, um, and therefore. Uh, saying that it's unusual that that this passes to one particular player in the PSG team, or maybe two particular players, because obviously he doesn't like Cavani either, um, aren't hitting the right targets. In terms of reaction to that story, I've I've talked to a couple of people this morning um, and who are respectively close to Mbappe um, and um, have good contacts within PSG, and both of them were very surprised by it. Um, it's not to say that it's definitely false, but it, I would have expected the two people I spoke to to have been aware that 
if there were um, issues between Mbappe and Neymar, at least, that they would have been aware of those and heard of them um, and not been surprised that the stories come out. The idea of a swap deal um, for Coutinho, I find extremely difficult to run in that why would Philippe Coutinho, having spent um, the best part of a year trying to get out of Liverpool to get his dream move to Barcelona. And in this case, that dream move wasn't an in inverted commas. He absolutely was the club he wanted to play for and has always wanted to play for, like so many Brazilian players. Why would he then accept moving to Paris Saint-Germain, even if it was to allowing him to play with a guy who is, he is very close to, um, Neymar? Um, that just doesn't make sense. I think it would also be difficult for to see why Paris Saint-Germain would sacrifice a player like Mbappe to placate Neymar and the assumption that he is un unhappy with Mbappe because Mbappe has been a huge success for them. Um, clearly the most um, talented teenager um, in world football um, and a huge battle to get him against the, the teams that they are competing for for the Champions League. He has continued his his um, upward trajectory at Paris Saint-Germain. Um, it's, it's very hard to say what his, his, his final potential is, but you know, perhaps Neymar's, if, that, if the story is correct, that Neymar's worried about him being a future golden ball and taking it off him, then he could be right there because that's, that's the way his career uh, looks to be headed at present. So why is Paris Saint-Germain, would you allow a player of that level to leave? Um, particularly when you've spent so much on him, but also when he, he has been so popular in France and done a lot for Qatar. The Qatar ownership of PSG is controversial there, but uh, Kylian Mbappe has been one of, the, one of the players who's been great for them from a PR purpose because he's almost universally popular in France because, of it, because he's a national team player, because of his attitude, because the way he plays, because he, he lives his life with a smile, which, <laughs> which seems strange, but that, it goes down well. Um, for footballers these days. So there's, it, it's a fascinating story, but to, to think that this could actually happen, I think there's so many blocks on it that I, I don't see it being the real possibility. The one thing, Duncan, I'd say that, that rings true for me in this, um, and I have to say I agree with you with regards to it not actually happening or it being very, very unlikely, is that we know that one of the reasons Neymar moved to Paris Saint-Germain because he's the one to live in the shadow of Leo Messi. Um, he sees himself as, you know, the main man in any team, the superstar player, the one who everyone adores. So if there is some kind of, um, you know, a little bit of friction between Neymar and Mbappe with regards to Mbappe being very popular, especially in his home nation of France, and remember Neymar's living there, uh, and therefore he looks at the press and the media and online, social media and everything else, if Mbappe's getting all the credit or all of the adulation, then that... What we know about Neymar is he's immature enough to throw his toys out the pram and say, this is a problem for me. So um, it's just one of those things where, generally speaking, and as certainly as journalists, we like to at least believe that there is some substance to stories that are written by our colleagues and therefore not just manufactured. Um, and if there is to be any substance to this at all, then Neymar's jealousy or potential jealousy, which we've seen obviously erupt spectacularly with Edson Cavani already this season, is a possible source of where this story is coming from. However, I would say that in the case of Felipe Coutinho, 
you have a very different kind of player, a humble, a player with humility, a player who uh, was grateful for the fact that he was allowed his dream move to Barcelona mid-season from Liverpool. And then young Jimmy there is just agreeing with me, which is nice in the background. Um, always good to have your best friend say that you're right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think I, I don't see this one happening. Uh, however, it may be a little bit of a shot across the bows from um, the Neymar camp about Mbappe's popularity and what might happen in the future should that continue to grow. I think I think that's the, the, the interesting reading of it. We know that Neymar, we know Neymar's father wants him um, to leave PSG this summer if they can. We know he'd like to go back to Spain. We know he'd like to go to Real Madrid. We know Real Madrid want him. So if you want to throw a conspiracy theory out there, then maybe that conspiracy theory would be that it suits Neymar's camp to have another um, story about uh, problems within the PSG dressing room out there. And we've moved on from Edison Cavani to um, the, the other big name striker in the PSG camp, which is Mbappe, and let that one run for a bit and see if that helps to get Neymar to Madrid campaign over the coming months. At what point do, do these kind of stories about Neymar start to damage the player's brand? Am, am I old-fashioned and out of touch with how modern football works, or is this actually going to become a corrosive element in terms of yeah. future career? Yeah, uh, Johnny, I think that's a very good point, Johnny. Uh, uh, in terms of Neymar's brand, yeah... <sighs> He's had good advice and bad advice. But what we know for sure is that his father remains the dominant um, person in his career development, his career choices. Um, given that his father has been personally paid commissions from the move uh, to Barcelona and the move to Paris Saint-Germain, it tells you a lot about um, his position in the hierarchy of authority in Neymar's life. We've talked about it before on Transfer Window. Neymar is immature as a person, uh, he's boy-like uh, in terms of the way his, um, let's say his, let's just say the way he plays football. Uh, Duncan described in detail before about how sometimes he was being um, analysed and even criticised for the fact that he would rather be a defender two or three times than take the opportunity to actually pass the ball into a better position for a teammate to score because he was effectively showing off. And like, there's no doubt he's a sensational talent, but. He's also one person playing in a team with another 10. And at some point, the penny has to drop for him. Now, the brand thing is huge because of the money he earns from, obviously, sponsorship deals uh, with sportswear firm uh, that that we don't have to mention, as well as um, the money he's paid for his image rights by Paris Saint-Germain. If he starts to damage that image himself with these petty spats, whether it's with teammates or the manager or anyone else, then, yeah, you're right there will be consequences. We did we we named Paris Saint Germain the new FC Hollywood. That's clearly escalating. And I guess if I'm Florentino Perez, as a brilliant a player Neymar is, I would actually ask myself, do I need a prima donna who potentially I can't control or even manage in my team, in my dressing room, damaging the Real Madrid brand because Real Madrid is intensely conscious of its position as the preemptive footballing club in in the world, the most glamorous, the most illustrious, the most decorated. So a player like Neymar, as much as they cover him for his football, you've got to ask yourself, is he more trouble than he's worth? Well, that's a very, very difficult balance to try and strike. I think I think ultimately with footballers, they're 
their brand value, if you want to use that phrase, comes down to what they do on the pitch. So as long as Neymar has this appeal in terms of what he can do with a ball on a football pitch, um, which is broad, you know, his, his appeal is with a younger generation commercially, and that's part of the reason why Qatar spent so much money to sign him and wanted him to be um, not just a, a, a leader for them on the football field, but a leader for them commercially. Um, he has that appeal. And if, if he can get away with this kind of stuff, if he is the best player on the pitch for Paris Saint-Germain. Um, but you have to say that down the line, if he wants to be recognised as the top player in the world, which certainly his father wants him to be, and that's where he's being set up to be, he's going to have to be in a team, be the leader of the team, perform on the pitch, not cause troubles, or not cause trouble that prevents that team from winning titles. So he's got to be the leader and they've got to win silverware. And he hasn't done that yet. And maybe you won't do it at Paris Saint-Germain. And maybe Real Madrid isn't the place for him to do it either just because of his character. So, so probably there is an element of him having to, to grow up there to get to the very top level. But in between times, if the performances and the pitch are good enough at Paris Saint-Germain, to, to keep the, the fans happy with the pirouettes and the goals, then you can get away with quite a lot. We touch on Real Madrid there, and we're going to go back to them uh, to discuss Paul Pogba and a link that's been made with the midfield player from Manchester United going out to Spain. I don't see it happening, um, to be honest, Johnny. Um, I had some meetings in Madrid uh, during the January window, and uh, the feeling um, regarding Pogba's situation at Manchester United, which is still in flux, we should uh, also say. I don't think that's been entirely resolved just as yet, and Duncan will be able to fill us in more on that. But um, he's not he's not seen at this moment in time, certainly, as a Real Madrid player. Um, if you look at their, their current midfield options, uh, obviously we've got a rather ageing Luka Modric, who still is in sensational form. Tony Krush in the prime of his career, and then you've got other players like Casemiro and Isco, uh, who are also um, very talented. Uh, Pogba is, I think, admired for his potential, but not for his current, um, I feel like, stage of development in his career. So, I, I and also um, it was pointed out to me that um, no player who has been represented by Mino Raiola has ever signed for Real Madrid. I don't think he's a friend of Real Madrid. I think Real Madrid are a conservative uh, institution and look upon um, certain people as people they will or will not deal with. I'm not saying that you know Raiola will never have a player at Real Madrid, but at this moment in time, Raiola, I don't think he's seen as someone who Real Madrid necessarily want to um, have to uh, deal with with regards to any signings. As I said, that could change. However, that's how it remains at this moment in time. So, for me, Madrid is not an option for Pogba. Um, I'm still not convinced that the Manchester, having invested the money they have in him, want to get rid of him. Uh, I just think that um, at the moment there's obviously uh, been a little bit of friction between him and Jose Mourinho. But in my experience of, of knowing Jose Mourinho over the past 12, 14 years, that's something which he will sort out for himself. And, and Duncan, you can mostly bring us up to date on, on what's been happening um, uh, as you did last week on the transfer window with regards to Paul Pogba and Jose. 
Firstly, with Real Madrid, Real Madrid had the opportunity to sign Paul Pogba in 2015. They allowed um, Barcelona to take the lead then. Barcelona actually had an option to buy with Juventus um, that they, they didn't um, apply in the end. Um, they also had the opportunity to go head-to-head with Manchester United in 2016. They didn't do that. So I think that tells you where Paul Pogba has been on Real Madrid's list of priorities. And I think you're right that they, they've got other areas of the team that they they are looking to reinforce this summer. So I'd be very surprised if they if they went after Pogba this summer. Um, yeah, you mentioned Mino Raiola. Mino Raiola is being seen as uh, a central figure in the problems between Pogba and the club at present. Um, the feeling is that, uh, well, Raiola did use Alexis Sanchez's transfer um, and the salary he was given at Manchester United as an opportunity to try and increase Pogba's salary. Um, he was told that that Sanchez was being placed on the same level of salary as Pogba, so there was no need for Pogba's salary to be increased off the back of it. Um, Raiola has been uh, pivotal in this argument that the Pogba camp is making that, or has made that, um, that Pogba needs to play on the left-hand side of a three-man in midfield, less defensive duties, which has gone down very, very badly with Jose Mourinho and led to him being uh, left out or substituted in, in various games recently. Um, I don't think this is completely resolved, um, but I think that the fact that Raiola is being held as the cause of problems rather than Pogba gives you an indication that Manchester United and Jose Mourinho want to resolve this and want to get Pogba playing in the team they know in the way he know they know he is capable of. And you know, as we've said before in the transfer window, that this idea that Pogba needs to be shorn of all defensive duties. Um, to get the best out of him in the team is just anathema to to Mourinho, who expects all midfielders to to have defensive responsibilities, as most managers do. Um, and Mourinho also feels that you know there's, there's no reason why Pogba cannot develop into a far better midfielder because he has all the technical and physical capability to do so. It's merely, in in his view, a case of application. Um, doing the right things at the right time, being aware of where he needs to be in the field. You know, in the, the game at the weekend, we saw Manchester United go a goal down because Paul Pogba didn't challenge properly for a header at the edge of his own penalty area. So a situation, uh, sorry, at the edge of um, Chelsea's penalty area. So a situation where Manchester United had a set piece and had Chelsea on the back foot turned into um, a counter-attack where William ended up with a free shot on goal. There were other defensive errors subsequently, as the ball went up the field, but essentially Pogba allowed Chelsea to get into position A for their attacking system, which is a quick break from their own half with the, with the opposition defence out of position. And that's the kind of error that shouldn't happen with a, with a midfielder of his quality. It's a, you know, he, he, was, he was jumping against Victor Moses, who I think is at least four inches smaller than him. So it's a, it's a no-brainer that you, you go up and at least stop Moses getting the ball. You certainly don't end, end up lying on the ground with, with Chelsea um, sprinting away from you and, and scoring a goal 10 seconds later. That's the kind of thing that Mourinho wants Pogba to improve on. 
And the, the problem, as you know, as you mentioned, Ian, is this immaturity. And, and until Pogba recognises that he can't have all problems solved for him by the manager and by the players on the pitch around him, that he is the most expensive player in the team. He, uh, he regards himself as being the best footballer in the team. He has to put that into play by being the dominant figure, both from an attacking perspective and do his defensive duties. When he does that, then he can reach where he, where he's, what he's capable of reaching in football. Duncan, how long does Mourinho's patience stretch in terms of this? Because, you know, he's a Manchester United manager. It's not West Brom or somewhere like that where he has the time to uh, allow a player to reach their potential. I mean, tactical and discipline has never been something that Jose has been uh, has, has allowed to go unquestioned or, or, or untackled. So is there a sense that this might be heading towards a summer conclusion? Well, you ask how long it goes on for, you can see he's already taken action. He's dropped him twice um, and he's, he's uh, taken him off the pitch twice in key games because he wasn't doing what he wanted. So he, and, and he's had him in to his office to have a long discussion over what he should be doing and, and, and making it clear that he's the manager and Pogba's the player and Pogba has to follow what the, the, the manager um, asks him to do. So, um, yeah, he's trying to resolve it and, and I, I, I think I would expect it with the caveat of what Raiola does um, to be resolved uh, because one of his, his many qualities as a manager is, is his man management. He's a good psychologist. He's good at getting um, players to respond to him. You saw a kind of one of the, the lighter sides of him in the weekend game where, where he had Eric Bailly um, bring a, a note onto the field to give to Nemanja Matic um, after they'd gone 2-1 up. And you know, um, William trying to nip in to see what the, the note said, thinking it was tactical instructions from Mourinho and Matic. Um, so I think yesterday put it on his Instagram account, a picture of the note, and the note was, um, you, have, you have three days off with a smiley face. <laughs> uh, so that's, and that, that, that kind of lighter side to him, I think it is lost in his public persona. He, he, he's often, these days, he's seen as quite a dark individual on the touchline, a dark individual in press conferences. But he's, he's not um, the kind of totalitarian figure he's depicted I agree Duncan players. I agree Duncan and, and it's something Josie has done throughout his career um, I remember very clearly uh, in the first title winning season at Chelsea to 2005 um, uh, they were away at Bolton Wanderers uh, on midweek game um, they, they managed to get the lead uh, it was the last few minutes of the game a substitute came on gave John Terry a similar note which he put in his sock and, and everyone was like well what did it say he put in his sock normally he would rip them up and a couple of years later, I got a chance uh, to ask John Terry what that note said. And he said, I still have it. It's just simply said, don't f- it up. <laughs> so, yeah, Josie has that ability to, to um, even express his sense of humour on the pitch when the players are, are doing their best to win a game. And uh, I think it has an effect. Players love that kind of stuff. They like to be related to by the manager in that sort of rather more jovial way, even in a high-pressure situation. As you just pointed out, Duncan, 2-1 up against Chelsea at Old Trafford. Still, there was a bit of humour came through that. And, you know, players really appreciate that. They, they respond to it well. And um, uh, Josie just doesn't get the credit, I think, that he deserves for, um, for his sense of humour. As someone like you, Duncan, who spent a lot of time in his company socially, he is incredibly funny uh, and very witty and intelligent. 
and uh, there's certainly a light-hearted side to him. Yeah, he reads people well, and that's uh, I think he's talked about it in interviews that psychology he sees as a, a very important part of the management skill, and he and he applies that with his players in various ways, you know, carrot stick ways of you could say manipulating them. Um, I don't think they. I mean, you know Frank Lampard very well, and you've got some great stories of of how Jose turned Frank Lampard into the the player he he became. Um, you know, subtle little things and clever things that that get players to do what he wants them to do, which after all is what a manager's job is. I suspect actually, um, if Jose could, and Frank was up for it, he'd love to get Frank up to Manchester to have a sit down with Paul Pogba, and actually go through some of those things that you just mentioned and go through some of Frank's own experience because the um, potential that was in Frank when Josie arrived at Chelsea is similar to the potential that's in Paul Pogba. I mean, in fact, a lot of people might argue Paul Pogba is more naturally talented. But the bottom line is that Josie got Frank to apply himself even harder, work even harder to become the player he became. And I think that's exactly what Paul Pogba needs now. He needs to apply himself and work harder and harder to, to realise the potential that he clearly has. Okay, guys, from one side of Manchester to the other, we go to Manchester City and their manager, Pep Guardiola, who's been causing a bit of a storm by wearing a yellow ribbon uh, in support of the imprisoned Catalan politicians. Guys, does this put Pep in direct collision course with his employers in Abu Dhabi? I think it's becoming a problem for him. Um, First of all, say uh personally i think he's right in supporting um the catalan po- politicians who've who've been imprisoned um without trial however um this is a you know it's a very basic rule in football that there are no political um expressions uh on the pitch or pitch side it's written into the fa rules um it's a fifa rule uh to start with and it, it's there for good reason it's we can't, I don't think anyone FIFA can make judgments about what is an acceptable political statement and what isn't. And generally, with most political statements, you'll find someone who uh, doesn't think it's acceptable and is, and is angered by it. And when you put that into a footballing situation, you've got clearly the potential for conflict um, and violence in stadiums off the back of it. Now, Guardiola has... It's the side of his character. He's a very um, principled, but also stubborn man. And when he decides he's going to do something in one way, he, he very rarely changes his mind. And he's decided he's going to wear this yellow ribbon regardless. Um, he was warned uh, twice by the FA over wearing the ribbon. He ignored both warnings after the third time, which was the Wigan Athletic defeat. He was charged and will decide whether, and the FA will dis- he has the opportunity to defend himself. The FA will decide whether he gets a fine or a touchline ban or both. Now Guardiola, after winning the League Cup um, at the weekend and wearing the yellow ribbon again, was asked about this and said, um, "It's a point of principle for me, um, and it doesn't matter whether I'm fined. It doesn't matter whether I am banned from the touchline. I will carry on doing it regardless." Um, which is again. Noble statement, but what came next in the press conference was a question about how he squares um, his statements about uh, this being a a human rights point with managing a team 
that is owned by Abu Dhabi, a country which has been cited by Human Rights Watch for its abuse of human rights, which isn't, which is non-democratic. And that placed Guardiola in a difficult position. His answer wasn't entirely convincing. He said, um, I quote here, every country decides the way they want to live for themselves. If he decides to live in that, it is what it is. Um, the problem I think he has here is he is exposing Manchester City, exposing Abu Dhabi to bad press about their human rights record. And what you have to be aware of with Manchester City is the club was bought by Abu Dhabi, titular ownership by Sheikh Mansour, a senior member of the royal family, in order, fundamentally as a PR project for the country. So it was a, it was a, it was a way to get Abu Dhabi's name in uh, in the media on a regular basis to buy effectively buy advertising for state enterprises like um, Etihad Airways um, on, a, on a cheap basis because you get that exposure every time they play a game rather than having to pay for adverts on, on television and a way to, uh, to buy the, the country a, a degree of political leverage in the same way that Qatar has bought PSG and got itself involved in football. Now, when you're a PR project, if you start getting questions asked about human rights off the back of your manager's decision to flout FA rules, you can see a potential conflict coming down the line. And it will be interesting for me to see whether Abu Dhabi will tolerate Pep Guardiola continuing with this yellow ribbon protest if the FA fine him. Okay, a fine is nothing. That can be paid off. But if they start giving him touchline bans... And those touchline bans affect the performances. Plus, they're putting something that Abu Dhabi do not want in the in the press, on you know on a regular basis. Then you you wonder what the response will be there. I think Duncan's right in terms of what's coming for Pep, um, and on a purely footballing basis, the touchline ban will be the one which will clearly you know be the the deciding factor, if you like, because if he is if his personal protest against the imprisonment of Catalan politicians interferes with his ability to manage Manchester City effectively, that's when I think there will be words had behind the scenes with regards to what happens next. Um, he's made a little bit of a rod for his own back here, Pep. Um, he was an ambassador, along with Zinedine Zidane, it should be said, for the, um, the bid for the 2022 Qatar World Cup. Um, he entertained and spoke at functions um, and obviously was well remunerated for that. Um, and at that time, there was a French footballer who was imprisoned uh, in Qatar, not imprisoned, but he certainly was being held against as well and not allowed to leave the country. That footballer wrote to both Zidane and to Guardiola um, appealing for their help uh, in any negotiation with the um, the. the the authorities with regards to his ability to leave the country and um, from what I um, have seen reported Guardiola did not acknowledge the appeal so um, being called a hypocrite is something Guardiola would not like uh, to be the case as Duncan said he's a very principled man a very stubborn man so um, I think he is inviting um, this I wouldn't say it's, a, it's, it's an argument just yet I think it's not at that stage. But as I said, if it affects his ability to actually um, affect, uh, to manage Manchester City, that's when we'll see a change 
uh, or indeed a conversation behind the scenes with regards to what he does next because um, the, the situation won't be sustainable for him. OK, that's one to keep an eye out for, but we're going to move on to our quickfire round, our legendary quickfire round, where we are going to look at the names that are suggested for Arsenal, should Arsene Wenger leave. So I'm going to start with you, Duncan. I'm going to give you the first name, and you can tell me if you think there would be a hit or a miss at the Emirates. So, Leonardo Jardim. Yeah, look, Jardim did a great job at Monaco. Exceptional job winning the, the French title, um, despite the opposition of, of PSG, um, and taking them to the, the semi-final of the Champions League. He's a very talented coach. Um, what you have to say was he was provided with a, an exceptionally good group of players at Monaco, um, and the recruitment was done for him. So if Arsenal are looking for the recruitment to be retained by Miss Lintat and Sanley, their, their new appointments, then possibly someone like Jardim is a fit. If they're looking for a like-for-like replacement as a guy to be the manager and the leader of a football club, I don't think he's the right man for the job. So hit or a miss, Duncan? <laughs> <laughs> miss. Paolo Fonseca. A hit, I believe. Um, did a very good job at Shakhtar Donetsk, um, discussed uh, elsewhere in the podcast by Duncan. Um, I think he's got a very strong sense of his style of football and um, would be a very interesting addition to the Premier League. So for me, Fonseca, a hit. Mikel Arteta. Yeah, that, that would be... We're talking about Thierry Henry as a candidate um, in the press and Thierry Henry is very interested in that job and pushing himself for it. That, for me, is a big gamble. I think Mikel Arteta would be an even bigger gamble because um, he doesn't have the presence um, and the, you know, the, the, the kind of buy-in from Arsenal fans that Henry would have. And his experience while he's you know, working as a, an assistant for Pep Guardiola at Manchester City at the moment is limited in football. And, and I think his role at Manchester City is very much to be the guy who knows English football from his years of experience and feeding into an established technical team that knowledge rather than being an intrinsic part of their, their coaching and managerial methods. So um, for me, that would be a, a, a big gamble and, and a miss. Carlo Ancelotti. I think Carl would be a, a hit at Arsenal. Um, he would adapt um, style. Uh, he's been probably uh, guilty of being a little bit more pragmatic and cautious uh, in the past, but I think he would bring a, a presence and a charisma to Arsenal, uh, which I think would supersede and also succeed Wenger very well. My uh, information and my instinct, however, is that Arsenal want a younger man than Carlo. Um, however, that would not deter me from saying that, that Carlo would be a hit at Arsenal. Marco Silva. Yeah, look, I, I, I mentioned Marco Silva as an as a kind of ideal candidate for Arsenal earlier in the season when he was um, had started so well with Watford. I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not going to break with that um, position. I think he he Ended up leaving Watford because of his ambition. He wanted to, to move to Everton and tried very hard to force that move and in doing so caused problems within the camp. 
Um, that level of team, a club like Arsenal, is the kind of place he wants to be. I think he has the coaching and managerial skills to do it. I think he's a very strong character. Um, and um, his football is, is, is um, forward-thinking enough to appeal to the Arsenal fans. So I think he, he would be a definite hit. The Brodge. Um, the Brodge, as I said earlier, I, I, I think people um, discount him for, for reasons that they can only have to explain for themselves. Um, right football philosophy, right age, right experience in his time with Swansea Liverpool, and I think would be a hit to Arsenal. Julian Nagelsmann. Well, Julian Nagelsmann, it seems, is prime candidate for the Bayern Munich job or has been for a long time. If Bayern Munich don't take him, then Arsenal would probably be asking questions why they should take him. Um, because Bayern Munich decide not to take him as clearly they feel there's a problem in his level of experience and his readiness for a job of that level. Arsenal would be taking him out of the environment he's used to working in and asking him to, to, to compete in a far harder league um, for um, initially to try and qualify him from the Champions League, which as we've seen has become an increasingly difficult thing to do. So it, it doesn't really tick the boxes, you know, the, his name is it's one of those names. He's done well enough in European football that he rises as being a potential candidate for top jobs in, in, uh, in English clubs. And we see this with many um, coaches. But is he actually at the level where a top, like as, as I said earlier, a club with the sixth highest revenue in European football, world football, should be looking to appoint him? I don't think so. So I miss. Diego Simeone. This would be one of the most controversial appointments in the history of English football. Because Simeone is everything that the Arsenal tradition sets itself against. He is confrontational. He is brash. He will pick a fight wherever he wants, including in an empty room. And Arsenal are a club who are conservative, who acquiesce to authority, who see themselves as a an example of everything that's good about football. But you know what? He's exactly what they need right now, Johnny. He would absolutely shake that place its foundations. He'd be a hit. Luis Enrique. Um, Luis Enrique is a man whose star is very high. Um, I think it, in some ways his star is higher than it should be because we kind of forget that he was very close to being sacked in the season where he won the treble at the Champions League and essentially the players demanded that the tactics were changed um, and Enrique acquiesced. The change in tactics resulted in, in their season turning around and winning things. So if you want a manager who follows um, player power, um, then he could be the, the man to go for, um, which might suggest that he's the man for Chelsea. But um, <laughs> if, you want, if you want the top available candidate, I don't think he is the top available candidate for Arsenal. And I don't think he considers Arsenal to be the job that he wants. So that's a mismatch on both sides and therefore a miss. OK, and finally, a name that we mentioned earlier, Germany's Jorgi Lu. Well, 
I kind of I, I like to defer to um to Wenger's background and the fact that you know he was born and brought up in Alsace, which is much people say in France is much more German than it is French, and uh, and indeed Arsene uh, Wenger has in the last you know two decades at Arsenal um, exuded a kind of uh, wonderful Teutonic efficiency uh, in the way that he's uh, run the club from top to bottom. And so someone like Yogi Lowe, therefore, would definitely appeal to uh, Stan Kroenke and Ivan Gazidis. His reputation, his achievements are you know, exemplary uh, with the German national team. However, I would say his lack of experience in club football, um, his lack of experience, especially in elite club football, uh, would make him uh, very difficult to appoint um, and also, I suppose the, the the most difficult thing would be you probably have to pay him more than Mesut Ozil, which would be ridiculous uh, because paying Mesut Ozil that amount of money would be, is ridiculous already. So I'd say that would be a miss. OK, guys, it's time to slam this particular transfer window shut. We'll be back next Tuesday, which is our new and regular time. If you enjoyed the pod, and we hope you did, please drop us a review and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. This is more than just an ego boost as it helps get the show to as many ears as possible. Don't forget to subscribe as it means you get every episode as soon as it becomes available. And to continue the discussion, you can via Twitter where you can get me on at Johnny R. McFarlane, you can get Duncan at Duncan Castles and Ian at Garbo SJ. Until next time, thanks for listening.